Morning. Um, I'm just going to get right into the passage. And if you could, you could turn to um, Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 40. Now, last time I was here, up here, I mean, uh, was back in August. And if you guys remember, throughout the summer, uh, we sort of had this theme of uh, church on fire, right? And the reason why that was our theme was because As we were journeying through the book of Acts together, we saw how God moved, and we saw how the church grew and how it spread, how it went through through town to town miraculously changing the hearts of people, right? And so this month, we've sort of moved on from that theme, though we're moving into uh, the part in the book of Acts where Paul's ministry, his work in building the kingdom and how the church grows intensifies and escalates. And we're in this part in the book of Acts that I think appropriately our theme this month has been wildfire. Wildfire, because what we see is how the church is growing uncontrollably. And when we say that, we mean that no matter how much effort is put into snuffing out the church, there just doesn't seem to be a way to stop it, right? And that's encouraging for us because this is our history together. However, I want to encourage you guys because I believe the church and the wildfire, I don't think that their similarities just end in how crazy it spreads. I think that the church and wildfires, they're similar in the way that wherever they go, they actually open up space for life to sprout and flourish. Weird, hey? Usually when you think about wildfires, especially for us in the past few weeks, you think of it's a nuisance, it's an inconvenience, You'll hear on the news, it's like you're smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. A lot of people, it's death, it's destruction. But I've learned a little bit about wildfires over the past few months. And one thing that I learned is that wildfires occur naturally, often because in nature, there's a buildup of dead things, right? Branches, felled trees, foliage. And wildfires actually have a natural and beneficial place in a life cycle of a forest, of of nature. Because what wildfires do is that once a wildfire sparks and sweeps over an area, what it does is it burns out all of these dead things. It opens up space, and what's left behind is fertile soil. Soil wherein life can regrow, life doesn't feel suffocated, and where it flourishes. And when I learned that, I thought, that's very interesting. Because when I read the book of Acts, I see that wildfire. How it spreads uncontrollably. But also in the way that wherever it goes... It's killing away, it's burning away all these spiritually dead things. And it's opening up space for life 
to begin anew, to flourish. I don't think that's just contained in the book of Acts. I think that's here for us. Now, if we go on further with this analogy, right? I, I told you, I went into this rabbit hole with wildfires. I started to read, and, and what I found out is that human intervention has actually made wildfires worse over the years. Now, why is it worse? Is because we've become so good at putting out these small fires in the wild that this buildup of dead things grow to an extent that when a wildfire inevitably does occur, it burns everything so intensely that there's nothing left surviving. Weird. Now, if you follow along with me, if you look at a wildfire as an act of God, and a lot of insurance policies will tell you that. It is an act of God, right? And if you see human intervention, sort of equate that with, you know, this world's effort to stifle, to battle, to fight against an act of God, then our passage today at Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 40, fits in rather well as an example of what spiritual warfare is like. It serves for us as a great example of how the world tries to stifle God's wildfire and how we can respond to it, how we can fight back. Oftentimes we look at spiritual warfare and, and we think about how many ways the enemy can attack us, but how can we respond? Our passage teaches us that. And so I'm going to invite you, if you haven't turned uh, your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 40, uh, you can follow along on the screen. And we're going to read together where we're at. Verses 16. As we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had the spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the God Most High, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now the crowd joined in in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this, or, this order, the jailer put them into the inner cell in their prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was this great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, 
And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us in prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And they, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now, just to provide a little bit of background into where we're at right now. Last week, we heard Pastor Kyle talk to us about conflict. And it was because Paul and Barnabas at the time, these powered couple, right? This powered duo of missionaries had a conflict where in Barnabas went one direction and then Paul went the other. And we're... We're talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about how no matter what the enemy does to stifle God's fire, it never stops them. Because what we see is that even though this power duo of a missionary team goes their separate ways, Barnabas goes on to encourage churches that were just planted in their last missionary journey. And Paul goes on, and he actually goes further than he's ever gone before up, up to this point. Earlier on, we saw how their missionary journey took them to modern-day Turkey. Now what we see is that Paul's going further, and he's actually sailing towards Greece. Pretty big deal. And so we're here now in the city of Philippi. And I mentioned to you guys spiritual warfare before. And don't get kooky on me, all right? This is the word of God. And so we'll stick to the word of God. And let's first define what exactly we're talking about when we say spiritual warfare. If you're unfamiliar with the term, Paul describes spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6 as such. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces 
of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm, period. That's, that was the end of it. And if that verse is familiar to you, it should be because Pastor Kyle actually spoke on this very thing. If you guys remember, our resident firefighter, Jordan, came up and he put on what we would call the armor of God today, right? Paul goes on to describe in Ephesians chapter 6 what that is. And so when we think about spiritual warfare, we think about the schemes of the devil. We think about the struggle that isn't against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, spiritual forces, world forces, forces that try to suppress the gospel, try to flush it out, try to defeat and overcome the church. And so it's important for us to actually talk about this because, well, for one, it's happening, right? Whether you're aware of it or not, whether you dismiss it as only one side of the church really cares and, and this is the side that, that shouldn't worry about that, it's happening around us, in your workplaces, in your schools, wherever you are. One of the biggest battlegrounds I found in, in, in terms of spiritual warfare was Bible college, right? There, I saw a lot of people struggling with spiritual forces. And so, everywhere you go, even in the church, there's a spiritual battle going on. It's happening whether you're aware of it or not, whether you care or not. And so it matters in that way. It also matters because we all have a stake in it. If you're a believer today, then there were battles fought for your soul. Someone had to bring salvation, the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ to you. And you were, you were able to understand it because of the Spirit. And so all of us who are believers today should care because we are all part of that battle. We all have a stake in it. And for the friends and families in our lives who don't believe just yet, we need to care about it for those, re for those reasons. And so we look at spiritual warfare in Acts chapter 16. And the first thing that we see, the first thing that we encounter is actually when Paul and his group are going to a place of prayer, what do we find? There's this girl who is possessed by a divining spirit. Now, tran the translation will often describe the spirit as a divining spirit. And what that means, it, it sort of explains it to you at the tail end of that verse. This is a spirit that can tell the future. But what we lose out on is in the original Greek, what is literally trans, uh, what is the literal translation of what the spirit is, is it's a python spirit. Interesting, right? Because for us in the West, you might be wondering, well, what does a python have to do with seeing the future? I learned in science class that snakes are actually fairly blind. So <laughs> that's, that doesn't really help with the analogies. But if you're a Greek buff, 
If you like Greek mythology, if you like history in, uh, in ancient times, then you would know that a python has a very unique symbol. And the python spirit has a very long history in Greece. So the python has that future-seeing sort of symbolism. And that's because throughout Greek history, all the way, historians found this, all the way to uh, 1400 BC, Greece would have these women called oracles. And these oracles, they would be employed to invite a spirit to possess them so that they would tell the future for their patrons. And it became such a big deal that around 1400 BC, this city that produced these, uh, these priestess women, these fortune-telling women called Delphi, it was actually considered the center of the world because kings, farmers, peasants, anyone who had a penny would come to, the, uh, to these women and they would ask them, tell me my future. I want to know what my future is. And so they would do that. They would have this, this thing would happen, this tradition would continue on throughout Greece for hundreds of years. And these women, these oracles, traditionally were called Pythia. You see where it's all coming together. Now, they believed that it was a god helping them, possessing them, tell the future. And for us, this isn't, this isn't us confirming that Greek gods existed. But what scripture tells us is that even though that tradition stemmed from a very, very long time ago, it persisted and persevered all the way into Paul's time. And what we do know is that these spirits, well, they exist. They're in operation. They're possessing this woman. And what's even more interesting is the sort of interaction that she has with Paul. Paul and his group, they're, they're walking around the city, and this woman is following them. And through the Spirit, she's declaring and shouting to everybody, these are the servants of the Most High God. They will actually show you the way of salvation. Interesting. Right? Because for us, we're, we're, we're thinking spiritual warfare. We're thinking these guys have to be our enemies. We're thinking that this spirit has to be an enemy of God. And yet, on all accounts, it seems like he's doing Paul's work for him. Right? He's telling everybody, this is the servant of the God most high. Listen to him. Go to this person. And yet Paul's reaction is very interesting here because he gets frustrated. He turns around and he drives the spirit out. You see, one of the main tools, one of the schemes of the enemy is deception. And it may not look like it from here, from us reading scripture right now. It may not look like it, but this spirit is very cunning very deceptive because even as it's calling out the truth the factual truth 
it knows that the people around aren't hearing the actual message. You see, we can do a thought experiment about this, actually. I want you guys to imagine, all right? You're not, you're not at Abbotsford anymore. You're not in Emmanuel Church. Imagine you're in Saudi Arabia. And imagine you can speak Arabic fluently well. And you go to a mosque and you tell them, I'm a servant of God. Well, what's their reaction going to be? Oh, good for you. <laughs> so am I. Pat on the back, thumbs up, you know, nod in agreement. You go to India, right? Go to a Sikh temple or a Hindu temple. Tell them in their language, I serve God. What's their reaction going to be? Same thing, right? They're going to say, oh, that's great. Well, you, you've come to the right place. And what that's, what's happening is when you're saying, I serve God, what they're not hearing is, I serve Jesus Christ, right? What they're hearing is, if you're in Saudi Arabia, if you're in a mosque, what, you're, what they're hearing is, I serve Allah. If you're in India, I serve your Hindu gods. I serve your Sikh god. What they're hearing when you say, I'm a servant of God, is they're not hearing, I'm a servant of Jesus. They're hearing their own God reflected in what you're saying. And that's exactly what this python spirit is trying to do. When, when she's shouting, when she's declaring that Paul and the group are the servants of the Most High God, what the hearers are hearing isn't they're the servants of Jesus. What they're hearing is these guys are priests of, of Zeus. They're priests of whatever pagan religion that they, that they believe in or that they follow. And so it's very cunning what this python spirit is doing is that even though it's spewing out the facts, it knows that by context, that by messaging, it's actually sowing seeds of deceit. This message of Most High God is raising more questions than it is giving answers. And this is a tool that the enemy uses often. This tool of deception, this tool of a, of a bait and switch, they'll, they'll give certain facts away, but they'll play it around, and they'll, they'll, they'll speak about it, they'll, they'll announce it in a way that deceives hearers. They do that to the church today. You guys know this. You guys watch the news. You guys hear what it's like for the world to view Christians. We have people who fight, believers who fight for the lives of unborn babies. But what's the messaging around that? The messaging that the world wants to give is that they're fighting against women's rights, right? We have messaging about helping out the poor. We have ministries that go out 
and, and, and feed the poor, house the poor, but what's the messaging of the world? Oh, it's, they're just trying to indoctrinate the most vulnerable people in the world, right? Christians these days are called homophobes, transphobes, unintellectual, anti-science. The list goes on and on and on. The messaging is to twist the gospel so that when the world hears Christian or Jesus, they don't hear about the love and sacrifice that we've experienced. What they hear is exclusion instead of love. What they hear is um, despair instead of hope. In the first 500 years of, of uh, church history, Rome would often try to turn the public against Christianity as well. And one of the m things that always came up, it didn't matter uh, who was emperor or, uh, you know, what kind, of, what kind of, what area in the church they're trying to suppress, but what often came up was Rome was accusing Christians of being cannibals and incests, incestuous, right? Weird. How could they make that accusation? Well, they called Christian cannibals because when we take communion, what are we partaking in? The blood of Christ, the body of Christ. And so when Rome would say, look at these Christians, they're cannibals. They're eating the blood and, and, and flesh of their savior. Do you see the twist in the message? Incest. How are we accused of incest? Well, in the church, we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So when Christian marries Christian, it's brother marrying sister. Bada bing, bada boom, we're accused of incest, right? Do you see the twist of messaging? The enemy schemes is deception. In John chapter 8, Jesus describes the devil as a father of lies. And all who follow practice in falsehoods and deception. And he says that because all the way in the Garden of Eden, that's the first play. Deception. Will you surely die? I don't think so. And so be aware of it. Be aware of it. Another scheme of the enemy is persecution. And this one, we know through scripture and through uh, the history of the church, persecution is a very widely used tool. You see, once Paul drives the spirit out of the girl, the owners become upset. The owners made a profit out of the girl's fortune-telling. And Paul took that source of income away. So in retaliation, the owners rouse the crowd and have Paul's group dragged, beaten, prosecuted, and jailed. What persecution is, it's an intimidation tactic. What it's meant to do is to make examples out of the few, you know, wear them down to make them think that the armor of God 
it's easier to take the armor of God off than to keep it on. And for the onlookers to see that and to shrink away. It's intimidation. Jesus warns us a lot about these, uh, a lot of how the world is going to respond to Christianity. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And Paul, now speaking from experience, writes to Timothy, Everyone who wants to live a godly life, to live earnestly for Jesus, will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We see these examples of persecution in Jesus' life. We see it in Stephen, how he became the first martyr. We see it through church history. And we see it in subtler ways, in maybe less overtly deadly ways here in North America. When a football coach who offers optional uh, prayers for his team loses his job. When a preacher, when a pastor who got all of his permits to set up and, and preach in the street corner goes and gets arrested for preaching the word of God. We see it in subtler ways but let's not sleep on the fact that this battle is being waged. All around the world, you might think that the church isn't being persecuted like it was in the book of Acts. But if you go around the world, you'll see Christians being persecuted in the same way, hunted. I remember I was in Israel, and our tour was a Messianic Jew, which means... Culturally, he was Jewish. He was born and raised as a Jew, and he came to believe in Jesus Christ. And he would tell us stories of people who would convert in certain communities. And if they ever had their faith made public, they would go missing. Police wouldn't look for them. Families wouldn't report them. They would only be noticed by their Christian friends. Christians are being persecuted. I read a book uh, a couple of years ago called The Insanity of God. And it's, a, it's this great book if you can get past the title uh, and, and read into what the journalist has to say. It's this guy who, after serving in the missionary field in Somalia and losing his son to illness there, he became so disheartened, he wanted to travel around the world. And he sought after the wisdom of other Christians who went through hardships themselves. He wanted to interview them and, and see what makes them continue to believe. What makes them continue to fight, to hold on. And this journey took him to Saudi Arabia, where the church is growing underground. And it's, these people are coming to know Jesus Christ through visions, through dreams, he went to Russia, where he interviewed pastors 
who were torn away from their families for 20 years, and they've been serving in prison, and all that they had to go on was a few strips of scripture and worship songs. That's the only thing keeping them going. One, one of these trips led him to China, where if he wanted to visit a rural house church out in the country, he would have to disguise himself as luggage in a 12-seater van, and he had to sit there and, and hide for 18 hours for people not to catch him. And he once did a, a conference of about 15 people at, the, at a time in the city where we, he would ask them, okay, what, what can I learn from you? What do you want to ask of me? And in this conference, one person stood up and he said, almost half of us here in this room have been to prison already because of serving Jesus. And I, I expect that by the end of this year, all of us will have that experience if we haven't already. And his question was, how do you think we can prepare to serve Jesus in prison? And that wasn't a hundred years ago. I think this book, maybe 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. And wherever the church grows, wherever the wildfire spreads, you can bet that the enemy is trying to snuff it out. What a question to ask. How can we prepare to serve Jesus in prison? How can we prepare to serve Jesus in times of suffering, in times of persecution? In, in North America, where everywhere else, you know, outside of these church doors are trying to tell you, Keep your religion to yourself. And yet we're commanded by God to go out and make disciples. How do we prepare to serve Jesus in persecution? Now, I don't want to just spend today talking about the enemy and how we need to just know their tactics, know their battle plans. Because I think our scripture also reveals to us how we can fight back, how we can go against the enemy, and in fact, how we can thrive. One of the very first things you see, and it's prevalent throughout the whole uh, chapter, is that what Paul does to fight the enemy is that he shares the gospel. Wow. Very elaborate. Very complicated. He just goes out and shares it. You know, with, when this girl was following them around for days, what does Paul do? He just turns around, and with a few simple words, he, share, he proclaims the name of Jesus Christ, and that's it. It's over. In fact, by proclaiming the name of Jesus, Paul actually does two things, right? The first thing he does is he sets the record straight. He stops the spirit from deceiving any further. He shuts the spirit out. And not only that, he drives the spirit out, which means to say he actually helps this girl, right? He actually frees her from this bondage of having to be continually possessed for her slave masters. But what he also does 
in proclaiming Jesus' name is that he establishes this hierarchy. Because this python spirit, as you guys know, as we've talked about, holds deep roots in Greek culture. All of a sudden, this powerful, very reliable spirit was just shut out by the name of Jesus. What does that tell us? You guys respect your python spirit to this level? Well, Jesus is up here. He, cannot, he actually overpowers. He actually overwhelms and overcomes. He sets free what these spirits try to hold in bondage. He establishes a hierarchy. Sometimes I think when we think about sharing the gospel, we start to sweat, you know, to our non-believer friends. We start to think, oh, I should have prepared a gospel presentation. Oh, I should have, I should have brought my notes from Bible study the other day, right? What if they ask a question I don't know about? What if I miss and mess up what I'm supposed to say? Sometimes we, we fall back into the Roman road or into other gospel presence, the, the whole bridge between the, uh, in the chasm, right? And those things are great, and they're good tools to have. But allow Paul to broaden your perspective in what it means to share Jesus. Sometimes all you have to do is proclaim his name. Sometimes all you have to do with your friend is to say his name. Say it in a way that encourages them. Say it in a way that, like most locks, need a specific key. If you're friends with someone and you're, you're thinking of sharing the gospel, you know what that key is. You know how to fashion it. You know how to turn it. Let the Spirit lead you in that. Jesus' name has power. And being a believer means the responsibility to use his name well. Another instance in our passage is when God shakes the prison doors and it makes loose all of the prisoners. And it actually leads the jailer to try to commit suicide. Now, if you're not familiar with, with Greek culture at the time, he's doing that because in those times, if you're a jailer and your prisoners escape, the punishment that was supposed to be on the prisoners now fall on you, right? Talk about occupational hazard. The, his, their punishment became his. And so to spare himself from that, he thought, I might as well end it here, right? That's the reality of his life. And yet what does... Paul do? Well, they don't make their escape. In fact, they keep, they keep in their jail cell. And what he does is he makes use of the path that God made for him and shared the gospel to the jailer. He told him, hey, we're here. And, do, and in doing so, what he actually does is that he allows the jailer to open his perspective beyond the immediate and to see the earthquake for more than just a freak accident or a freak uh, work of nature, but to see it as an act of God. What we can do actually as believers 
is that we have the ability, because we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, is that for non-believers, we can actually unveil God's miracles to them. And that's big. You'll hear non-believers these days. They'll talk about, oh, the universe did this, the universe did that, right? This impersonal force did this in my life. But we actually have the eyes to see what God is doing. And it's, we have that responsibility that holds Jesus' name to direct them appropriately. Tell them, you know what, that, that's Jesus right there. Will they think you're kooky? Maybe. But if they think you're kooky, then what's the point of hiding it? Right? Might as well tell them anyway and be, be done with it. You have the ability to unveil their eyes. You remember Paul. He also had scales in his eyes. We have the ability to peel those scales off for people. Share the gospel. There's power in his name. We learn that Paul's behavior and, and, and in this time of suffering and they're sharing the gospel, all of that combined is what turns the heart of this jailer. It isn't just having the right argument. It also isn't just living as an example for Jesus but never actually saying it out loud. It was a combination of both. We can't assume or take for granted the grace that God pours into our lives, the big and small miracles that he makes for us. One thing that I love to see too is that in this passage, what follows after is that Paul and his group visit this jailer's home. It isn't just, oh, you've received the gospel, our work is done here, we're going to move on. But what they actually do is they finish the work. They go into these homes. They make real human connections with this jailer and his family. They share the gospel, not in a way that's consumeristic. And what I mean is, you know, it's not in, through some podcast where you just throw it in the air and whoever grabs it, that's great. But they do the work of making a personal connection. What they do, and this is something I think that we need to reorient ourselves in as the church, is that they are bringing into the fold brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not door-to-door -door salesmen, right? As easy as that would have been for us to just go out of these church doors and just knock on them and be like, hey, you want to talk about Jesus? Nope. Okay, I'm going to go on my merry way. This is harder work. But what it is doing is you're welcoming in a lost brother and sister in Christ. Right? You're welcoming in someone to the family of God. And that's what being the church, that's what being part of God's family is all about. It's not selling a product. It's helping people find their way helping people find a family to belong to. 
Another way that we can fight back is perseverance and integrity. This goes a long way. We see through, um, we see through how Paul acts and his group, how they act throughout this whole endeavor. And it's good, it's nice, because they acted true. They didn't give up on their values, their uh, virtues, all of these things. And what happens is that they're vindicated in the end. You remember reading that in the tail end of this chapter, where at the end of it, it's, it's the magistrates and the owners and the city who's bowing down and, and apologizing and saying, oh, we're so sorry. And that's well and good because if they had faltered in any way, they would have disqualified themselves of their righteousness. If they weren't able to endure nobly, they would have lost that privilege of saying, it's all your guys' fault and we did nothing wrong. Now, this story ends rather nice and neat, wrapped around with a bow. But tradition tells us that that's not how it ends with every believer. Not every believer gets to walk away scot-free having saved a life or a couple or a few. For some of us, our, our enduring, our persevering has to go to the very end, to the ultimate end of the suffering. Tradition tells us Peter dies upside down on a cross. Paul is beheaded. James was stoned and clubbed to death. And the list goes on and on in church history. However, they all endured nobly to the end. They all persevered. And as, Paul, uh, as Peter puts it in his letter, they, they are all rewarded with an unfading crown of glory by God in the end. I'll read to you a passage in, in the book of Mark. This is Jesus speaking. He says, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Oops, sorry. And be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Enduring to the end. I read to you that Paul actually dies a martyr. And so he gets away of this situation scot-free, but he endures nobly into the end. The last thing that we're going to talk about, last way to fight back, is through prayer and worship. Prayer and worship is huge. In fact, when I was reading how this python spirit was possessing this girl, I couldn't help but think about a passage in the book of Mark where these disciples, they had no way of driving out a spirit out of this little boy. And so they looked to Jesus and they asked Jesus, Jesus, how come we can't bring this spirit out? And Jesus says, well, this kind, this kind can only come out through prayer and fasting. And what Jesus does is he tells the spirit to go away. So it wasn't prayer and fasting in the ritualistic sense of, 
okay, you tie down this, this uh, possessed person. I'm going to stop eating. I'm going to start praying. What Jesus does is he just declares, go out of this boy. And the spirit obeys, which suggests to us that it's the lifestyle of prayer and fasting that brings about this ability to drive out spirits. And I'm, I'm not saying this is a complete one-to-one with this python spirit and this slave girl. But what we see in Paul and his group is that their life is permeated with prayer and worship. What we see in, in any time that they have uh, downtime, they're praying. If they're not preaching, if they're not sharing the gospel, they're worshiping. Whether in uh, whether you know they're just going from place to place, or whether they're in prison, facing death, their behavior, their lifestyle doesn't change. The effects of prayer and worship isn't so that we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit, so that we can bend prison bars and and you know leap over tall buildings or anything like that. The effect of prayer and worship is actually to orient us into submitting God's will, into allowing God to take over us, to give us peace, to act and obey, act nobly and obey. It isn't so that we could find a way, a specific way out of our situation, but it's for us to live well in the situation that we're in. And what God does, whether he shakes the prison doors free or whether he just supplies us with the strength to endure, we work with that. We love him for it. And we pray and we worship all the way long. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you because you are always over us. You are going ahead of us. You are securing victory. But Father, sometimes we can be blind. Sometimes we can be forgetful. Sometimes we take our eyes off of you and try to fix things by our own strength and by our own power. Father, give us, this, give us the power, the strength to refocus on you to worship, to pray, to persevere, to stay true to our identity in you. Help us, God. Oftentimes, we, be, we feel like victims of what the enemy can throw at us. But we know through you, we can become victorious. We know through you, there is victory waiting. Help us see that. Help us uh, take hold of it. Father, we thank you that we get to worship together out and, out and sing as loud as we want. Father, I pray that you encourage our spirits as we worship together today. In your mighty name, amen.